One, two, three. Hey, James. Hello, how are you today? Is that Welcome Frank? Welcome back to the podcast. And that's Frank and I'm James. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome and back the unruly to software. the Unruly Software podcast. That's right. You remember this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> That's us. Why would they forget? I mean, they're probably tuning in every week, right? Every week, every episode that I've released definitely on schedule <laughs> with no gaps. <laughs> we never missed. We No. That's like that uh, meme from Fortnite or something. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. You I'm not a miss, kid. Just like our tests, always green. Yes, that's right. Just like I'm always, hey, Postgres. Just like Postgres. <laughs> I don't normally what try do and do the steering in these podcasts. It's uh, it's not a strength of mine. <laughs> well, you do have other strengths, but speaking yes. of which, Postgres. Am I right? Yeah. Wow, that's a good segue. <laughs> Actually, that's much better than the one I was thinking of. I'm glad I didn't use my segue. <laughs> I've been learning a bit of Postgres of late. What's it like learning Postgres coming from a uh, graph database, Neo4j? Well, the funny thing is the, the query language for Neo4j is called CQL, Cypher Query Language. And they've copied a lot of the SQL commands. So Right. So they've tricked I, you. You thought you were learning SQL and really you... You learned CQL because it's SQL. Yeah. (laughs) Slight difference. Yeah. But I'm I'm learning more about how Postgres works than all the all the nice little cool tricks it has up its sleeve. Yeah. But I find them mostly by like going through your old code and being like, oh, what's this? How's this work? Oh, what's this? Yeah, I've got all the actually interesting tricks in there. Yeah. (laughs) This Postgres is like the biggest database. It's massive, ginormous. And if you get into the extensions, there's like, there's almost infinite things inside of Postgres. So, but there's like, there's like 10 or so things that are just like very standout, always use, like upserting and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I was blown away by, um, well, there's been a few things actually, but one thing that blew me away was the JSON B stuff, how you can do like in text search, like, yeah, real time searching through the JSON B. Yeah, and it's all indexed too. So um, I think that's also like so. They're like, yeah, I've done a little bit of consulting work on this recently, and yeah, there's a, a misconception that all these like uh, searches and everything aren't indexable in Postgres, but they're all like pretty much everything in Postgres ha- has an index. JSON B, even looking up like a key, you can index the result of that. So yeah, do you have to index? Do you have to index the JSON B or does it do it automatically? Uh, do you have to index it? Yes, yes, yes. So there's a gin. So there's two types of um, indexes. One is um, relatively vanilla called a, a gin, which I think is a generalized inverted index or something. I'm going to mess that up. But that's just like a general purpose index. It like indexes some of the keys and everything to speed up some lookups, that sort of thing. And then... Um, and some other magic. And then there's another kind of index that's called, that is quite unique to Postgres um, that I know of, which is an expression index. So if you have any uh, computation based on a table, like you have two, the first name and last name of a user and you want to concatenate the two of them and then compare to a string, you can actually index the joined first and last name without making oh. a column. 
And every time a table is updated, the index, like the first name or last name is updated, the index is recalculated. And then when you do a lookup of like first name concatenated with last name, there's mm. no cost of like loading in each of these records. You have an immediate lookup to the, to the index of, is it directly equal to this? So That's crazy. And you can do almost anything with that. The only thing you can't put in those expression indices is things that change based on time. So anything that isn't like consistent. So you can't put in like a generate UUID and you can't put in things like date. So if you put now there, obviously that's not going to end up in the same result after multiple evaluations. So yeah, that's it. I mean, I've been doing such basic queries, but like you mentioned now and those built-in functions, I was blown away. I'm like, look at all this cool, there's actual... (laughs) like functions in the database. I don't have to use like my JavaScript on top. Like, Oh my God. It's actually <laughs> powerful. Don't you don't even know like what you're getting into. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you can write your functions in Postgres. Do you know you can write JavaScript in Postgres? Oh, really? Yeah, you can write JavaScript functions, JavaScript uh, table triggers, all sorts of stuff. But you, um, so, yeah, so you can actually write JavaScript and then execute it inside the database is that right that's right yeah so there's some little extensions and everything i don't know if that's first class but yeah so i've used that before to to write functions um and that's not even that part isn't actually unique to postgres like bigquery has that as well you can um as like a semi-relational i suppose database uh Mm. you can write like uh javascript functions inside of that as well yeah it's a it's a relatively common pattern. Uh, it also has its own like impair. So you know it's like a declarative language SQL. Uh, mm. Postgres has a language called what is it PSQLSQ or whatever I don't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. That is specific to Postgres. That is an imperative language. So if you uh, uh, want to do something like do an actual if statement inside of Postgres on some data, you can actually just uh, write a function in that imperative style and then actually use that in your queries. So. Yeah, it's quite powerful. Have you heard of PostGraphile? No. It's a um, it's a little like a node wrapper around Postgres that will uh, build a so it uses functions in Postgres and all of yeah. this stuff to create. You can pretty much build ninety percent of your application inside of Postgres using the Postgres schema, using comments and uh, functions and all this sort of stuff. Everything uh, down to permissions on who can see what can be managed through Post through Postgres. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you. If you start writing so much business logic inside your database, how do you like what? How do you kind of structure that so that you don't end up in a big mess of of logical like a business logic inside your queries? Does that happen if you go too deep with this kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, so that that's sort of like the there's two ends of it, and uh, like. Uh, back in the day, air quotes. Uh, if you talk to anyone who's around the age of 40 in the industry, 40 to 50, uh, yeah. and they've been doing it since they left college, they'll, they will have a, like a gut reaction to like, oh, triggers in the database. No, thank you. Like <laughs> right off the bat. They get um, triggered by triggers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they have to be used very carefully. Like you can't build your entire domain logic in the database or you'll yeah. probably screw yourself. Um, but definitely there's a lot of problems that instead of reaching for another different tool or building an entire new like service, just insert a trigger for that one use case. If you've got something like 20 triggers, no one's going to be like lost. Right. But if you have something like 500, which is what a lot of older applications might've had, definitely a lot of people will be confused and triggered. So, Mm. (laughs) yeah. 
it's so uh, the documentation is quite good. And then the more I was going through it, I was th- I reminded myself I'm like it's all open source, right? Yeah, you can you oh, can actually read the code that uh, is doing your query planning. So <laughs> it's worth having a having a, a read through. So who maintains it? Uh, so the post, like there's an organization, I don't remember the name of it. It's like the Postgres foundation or whatever, but I believe it was made at, um, uh, it was made at a, a, a university in America. Uh, one of those hippie ones, I can't remember what it's called, but it was made at like one of those very prestigious Ivy league universities as like a class project. And I think it grew out of that. If, if my history, uh, is correct. Yeah. yeah. So it's got quite a story to it. So it started out very simple and uh, has just apparently been built well enough that it's just grown and grown and grown. So, And then who maintains the SQL language itself? Is that maintained separately? Or yeah, I think there's like a, a body. You know how there's like the body that does um, uh, JavaScript? ECMAScript or the Ec- yeah. ECMAScript organization, they have the same yeah. sort of thing for SQL. So there's a SQL mm-hmm. standard that all of the database companies adhere to. Or at least inversions. So it's like a, it's a sequel. It's a standard that is like uh, numbered. So there's like uh, Postgres. I think had the most features out of the SQL SQL standard, and like MySQL was like two versions behind it, essentially. So mm. it's, there's like a table of where everyone is up to. Much like you know, can I use for like browser stuff as well? Oh yeah. It's, yeah. There's a table that shows you how far along everyone is in adopting the current SQL standard and sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah. And then those enterprise databases like oracle and what's the microsoft one called sql server yeah 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 yeah. do they have you had much to do with them like do they how how close is the is the feature parity between those kind of databases and postgres not very close there's a table that will show you like specifically the uh like there's a big table that shows you all of the like key features that make things easier and postgres not only has all of the sql standard that i recall being implemented obviously there's probably been a new version uh but it also has a whole bunch of features that are just not part of the standard that are built on top of that mm. so you know postgres has had ctes so if you've seen a query with a a, a with at the top with blah and so those yeah. make the, the the query a lot simpler um and also has some performance implementations but uh those were have been in postgres for like five or six years i feel and i don't think anyone else had them for a very long time so mm. it's definitely been ahead of everyone for for a while and the json support is definitely stronger than any other other database i mean when i seen how good the json support was it kind of makes you question if you really needed a document database yeah i mean postgres it, it, do you need a document database for a small scale document data if you have a small amount of data you could just use postgres easily obviously at large scale uh like the general inverted index and all this stuff isn't going to be as effective for large amounts of data as like if you used mongodb as like your document database their in the their indexing is going to be substantially more effective uh, for that specific type of data access but that's only at large scale so, mm. like, if you already have Postgres, just put in a table with key value and JSONB is the value and use that for the first, you know, 2 million, 3 million records. Once yep. you hit, you know, your billionth, then change to Mongo, I guess. Yeah, I'll let you know when we get there. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've written a fair few queries since then. 
Yeah. Hey, we're on the way, but it won't be, won't be too long. No, well, anything plus time is infinite, right? So, <laughs> But uh, I've been writing, so I've been writing some raw queries, which has been fun because we're not using an ORM. We've got the beautiful Zapatos there. So that's yeah. been really fun. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great little system. But um, I get a bit scared. Like, I think to myself, I should ask James to like stop somehow prevent like drop table in the database somehow. I don't know why I've just got like this bad feeling that I might just do something one day and accidentally write drop table or like. Yeah. You're scared that you have too many permissions as like the the API developer. (laughs) No, I think that's just normal. Like a fear of what you're doing. You, You can break things even worse than that if you just miss a query parameter. So like, uh, so for example, let's say that uh, <clears throat> you did not validate that. Uh, so let's say you have a tenant ID and you have users, yeah. right? Yeah. If you don't validate the tenant ID is there and you do a query and say, oh, tenant ID is in this list. And then the list is potentially empty. It's possible mm. that your query builder will just return you all of the users in the system. That sort of thing is mm. a sort of, in a way, like fail to fail to success instead of fail to failure but gotcha so that's even scarier than like potentially deleting data for one uh-huh. um the in terms of like deleting stuff no like there's just no way to stop a someone you can make someone read only but that's mm. that's most of the user permissions in postgres i don't see many people using because they're more for they were definitely designed more for like actual people logging in with sessions yeah. and doing queries and not wanting them to be able to see, like having multiple like departments of your school, having different databases mm. and them not being able to see each other's databases. Like yeah. that's sort of closer to what the, the user system is there for. Most companies don't have heaps of like Postgres users, unless there's one big caveat. If you have microservices and you want to maintain that all of the, the, the services have their own database in a way you can create multiple schemas, give everyone their own user. And then you have data isolation without needing to pay for 17 different databases to be running. And you can just scale up the one database for everyone instead of, you know, you know, there's ups and downsides to that, but uh, that's, that's pretty much the only time I've seen users used in Postgres. Yeah. Cause um, I actually thought about, because you, you have to like create a user to log in and it feels like it's more of a a kind of setup that you would give, like you said, to people who are actually logging into the database. But if you're doing something like we do where you've got Postgres running on AWS and it's just your API accessing it, then you just give it like root access. Is that the way it works? The API has root access to the database? Or? No, you don't need to do root access. But uh, obviously if if there's only one schema and one user accessing the data, then there's no reason not to have root access. There's nothing mm. more worse that you could do than being able to read and delete all of the data in the database, essentially. Uh, yeah. Could you make queries out from the database? Potentially, but uh, pretty much universally, if you're in the database, you're already, you, that's, that's the, uh, that's the hockey puck in the goal. So yeah, <laughs> there's nothing else that you want outside of that except maybe secrets, but you're not going to get that from queries from within the database. So, Yeah. As long as, Look, as long as I don't log in, we just let the API have access. I think it should be fine. Yeah, at least be fine. then I'll be writing the queries, and you'll be 
Well, no, it's just because you have you haven't become accustomed to it. That's why. Like, I feel like you know when you get access to the production database, you just like it's terrifying the first seventeen times, but then like you slowly yeah. get accustomed to it, and you realize, oh, it's not that bad. I'm have probably not going to delete. It up? Have I what? Have you actually like? Have I met broken someone anything? Who's, well, not you, but like, have you ever met anyone in your? Like, I, I've um, stories, but like, have you I've met impacted a production system before. Uh, <laughs> I've impacted a production system before. Oh, what happened? Uh, it's not that bad, but um, so there's a whole list. So there's an article called Postgres uh, Rocks Until It Blocks, I believe is, or Until yeah. It Locks. Uh, and there's a list of like what operations will like block. So for example, like updates will block some operations, uh, like deletes will block some, select doesn't block anything, right? That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So like if you're deleting rows in a table, you can't, you can't update the rows in the table at the same time. So the person deleting goes first and every other query gets blocked. Uh, one time on a specific table, I won't say which table, I won't say the scale or what the name of the table was because that'll give me away. <laughs> I did uh, do an update all. So I did update for every row instead of like batching and yeah. that locked every row. And this was a very important, this was essentially the login credentials. So no one could log in for about <laughs> five minutes while this update query ran. It's not like the biggest production incident, but it's definitely like, yeah. I, I like, a good one, but... I remember looking over at the chart while I was running that query and just like a little drop of sweat <laughs> fell off of my head and I just immediately canceled the query. Yeah. <laughs> Did it roll back? Does it roll the query back? Well, it's not a roll back. It's more of a, uh, yeah, that one would have been rolled back, yes. But uh, it's more of like, there was no data issue. It's more of like no one was able to do anything because I had locked the table for my update query. So the correct way to do that is to like pick, uh, like to run batches of those queries. That's what I've since done is to run batches, say 500 500 or a thousand records or something like that so that it's almost instantaneous and then you're not blocking the database for the people accessing it. So. Actually, speaking of locks, I had a question for you on the, on the lock topic oh, because um, okay. say, say we've got in our, inside our app, yes, um, we've got two users logged into the same business and they're both updating the same record say they're updating like a user profile, for example, one of their team members. And then um, one of them's updating one field and one of them's updating another field. Uh, Who will win? Yeah. Does the last request win? Like, uh, Yeah, so it depends on what the structure of the query is, for one. Uh, like... It, it, it is almost impossible for those queries to come at the same time unless it's a very highly contentious table. So like something that more, more than one user uses and like thousands and thousands of users use at the same time. Uh, in the scenario that you're talking about, which I think would be like, oh, some administrator updating the same person within relatively the same time, uh, it really depends on the way that the update query is structured as in like if you're only updating one field obviously if the other person updates another field and if they're sort of atomic updates, then it will be like relatively logical that it's, it's that. But if uh, a lot of what I do is normally because what I'm doing is that most of the validation is in the app layer because I, I do like domain objects. So they're always valid essentially. Uh, it actually updates the entire row. So every field is updated essentially. So yes, whoever was the last one, if they do an operation and then someone else tries to do an operation, like you're onboarding and offboarding someone or whatever, 
the last person will commit the entire record. So if a user record is updated, the entire user record is updated. So, yes. Yeah, I don't think it's a big issue for us, but I was thinking, what about if you're dealing with like money, for example, and you need to make sure, you need to make sure that it's always going to be correct 100% of the time. Wow. Have you heard of uh, ACID? Is that a... Have you, you heard mean, of that? Uh, actually consistent? Uh, is that uh, what it is? Uh, it is atomic, consistent, isolated, and uh, durable, I believe. Uh-huh. I'm amazed I remember that. And, and then the there's base, which uh, means a big uh, ass shitty experience, I guess, <laughs> which is manga. <laughs> to be technical. <laughs> yes, to be technical. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's just a transaction, essentially, uh, and a lock. So you can lock several things. You can have like an arbitrary row in a table lock. You can lock the user record. You could lock a whole set of user records, or you could do a lock... Um, Postgres, for example, has something, I believe it's like select, I can't remember the exact syntax, but there's like a select statement that will, any records that have been loaded will be locked for this. So if you loaded a user, a customer, an order and a purchase, and then you said select with lock or whatever the syntax is, it will actually lock down all of those rows so no one can mutate them until you've committed or rolled back your transaction. So, Interesting. Yep. So if you were, we're talking about over a distributed system, like if we got the front end, yeah. When you actually query that data, you'd ask it to be locked. So you'd be doing like an edit, pretty much. You're saying, "I'm going to edit." Yeah, you don't want to do too many of those. Yeah, as few as few locks as possible. So only lock the things where you're positive that you need to have some sort of isolation. So, for example, uh, if you had a workflow system, it might be reasonable that before someone uh, modifies an edge. Uh, that you would lock the edge, like do a lock on maybe the 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 edge table, and then at the start do of of any other mutations or 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 anything like that, do check if that lock is available. So both the consumer consumer and the producer of that sort of lock would would need to be aware of the fact that that's that's something that would be locked. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. just get weird behavior. If you just like start locking everything, you'll also run into deadlocks where like, okay, this person's updating this row. I've already committed this part, so I've locked this other row on this other mm. table, and in, yep. and you'll you'll end up in a deadlock essentially, um, yep. and those just end up being timeouts essentially. Uh, and there's like a little detector that'll try and stop it, but it can't stop all of them. So yeah, use locks uh, sparingly whenever possible. So what happens if you lock something and then never unlock it? Is there a timeout or if you lock something and never unlock it? Uh, yeah. Yes, there's a timeout. There's Well, there's a timeout on like the session normally. That's configurable. Obviously, you could lock it forever. Uh, and in fact, if you have like a migration running uh, and your migration runner fails, like seg faults or something, which I've had happen before, potentially your like migration table could be stuck in a permanently locked state, that sort of stuff, which has happened directly to me before. Um, so yes and no. If it is, all of the locks are related to some sort of session within Postgres, uh, so you can actually like uh, look. You can look at the like uh, P- Postgres like internal tables, find the session that is locking it, um, and then delete that session or close that session, and then delete the lock. So hmm. all of this stuff, it's a bit like uh, you, you know the Unix philosophy where everything's a file. Most of this stuff is in a table that you can delete. So oh, nice. So even the like the locks themselves are stored in 
tabular data. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's turtles all the way down. Yeah, it's it's elephants all the way down, probably. But elephants yeah. even better. Yeah. It's <laughs> bigger than turtles. Yeah. Yeah, so the queries have been fun. And then the other thing I was doing, I was learning about like, I'm such a noob. I was learning like left join and outer join and stuff. And yeah. then I thought to myself, hold on, I've seen this before. These are set theory Venn diagrams. Yeah. Finally, my computer science work has come to use. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a, a, a degree or how, <laughs> how far are you? Are you done? I mean, it's or... like, I started in like 2019 and then, Finally, there's some knowledge there that I've actually been able to use. It's been great. Yeah, somewhat use. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, for about thirty seconds. Like, yeah, oh, yeah okay, that's interesting. It's something. I um yeah, I remember when the like set theory thing clicked for me. Like I, I didn't quite get. I like uh, for a long time I was sort of uh, like a hobbyist user of Postgres. I would like just go between MySQL, Postgres, all this these random databases for no reason because I didn't really understand the underlying stuff. And one time I had this like super hairy query that I had to figure out. And uh, I asked my brother and he pretty much set, set me down and was like, all right, so this is just set theory. And he drew some circles. And essentially, yeah. as soon as I saw the circles, I was like, oh, that's all this is. We're just like, yeah. we're selecting this set and then like the exclusion of this other set that we've selected. And like the yeah. union operator, all of this stuff suddenly all that was like too complex and I didn't understand just sort of like clicked into place. So It's funny. I had the exact same thought when like with unions, when I seen it with the circles, I'm like, oh, okay. It's so funny how my brain just has been seeing the word union written in TypeScript so many times. Yeah, that you just think then, it's something else? Or? No, I know what it is, but yeah. I didn't have like a visual conception of it. And then when you see the visual conception, it, it makes like, it adds to that um, like fundamental knowledge, I think. I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, well, that's why you need to learn your foundations so that all these things become easier, right? Draw more pictures. Yeah, draw more pictures. Yes, that's uh, okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't draw many pictures. But. Yeah, so Postgres has been good. And then, well, the other thing i seen was, and I had a little bit of a play, when the Docker container, oh, and I need to, we need to talk about Docker too, big change in the Docker ecosystem. But What's the deal the, with Docker? Oh, was that a good segue? <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go there, there's big news, big news with Docker. But yeah. question, it, I noticed when the container starts, it starts Postgres as well as PG Hero. And then I opened up PG Hero, but uh, I couldn't really, I didn't really go too deep into what it does. But Yeah. Well, it's uh, so I added PG here because um, so Ankane or however you say that they have a couple really great um, like Ruby plugins <laughs> that I've used over the years, uh, and they just have a whole suite of like Postgres related Ruby and generic like Postgres things. Um, they have like a, a, the world's easiest like chart builder. Um, you just write a SQL query and it'll make a graph for it. It's absolutely incredible. It's probably the best like charting experience I've ever had. Um, so PG Hero itself by Ankane is, uh, like a little statistics collector and like GUI for viewing, like, uh, what queries are running, what's potentially unindexed. Uh, 
So like uh, you'll run a query and it'll show you which which queries are slow and it'll also show you real time what queries are running. So if you click an API method, uh, instead of like staring at the logs and just reading like the seven or eight SQL queries, you can just open up PG Hero and it'll show you the like last seven or eight uh, queries that were actually issued. And then if you have like a query builder or something, instead of needing to like write, because, you know, the thing is when you're debugging a, a SQL query, you really just want the raw text of the SQL query. You'll, you can get that from PG Hero just by copy-pasting. Um, if you want to get that from, like, a Connects query builder, you have to, like, either console.log the .raw result of it or, uh, or like, rewrite it yourself, which is, uh, yeah, not very realistic. So yeah. I use it for all those sort of use cases. I believe there's also a, um, a statistics module that it enables um, by default, which then, yeah, I think it tells you... Oh, it has like an explain GUI as well. Uh, it'll tell you the amount of connections open so you can tell whether or not you're leaking connections. And then also, yeah, essentially like is it are, are Oh, yeah, it literally says like there's no wasted indices on the page. So like if you have an index that isn't used, it'll say this index hasn't been used. And you can run some queries and see if it's actually used or whether or not you should delete the index. So, yeah. There's too many indexes impact the database performance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So indexing is a trade-off. Everything in software is a trade-off. So uh, you trade off um, for both write time slow. So if you make an index, you're essentially storing data that's a derivative of the table. You're duplicating data in a way, mm -hmm. right? Because if we're creating a, a binary tree of uh, of the, the user ID, uh, we're actually like writing the user ID twice, pretty much no matter what we do, right? Because we have to store it and we have to sort it and all that sort of stuff. And mm. we also have to point back to the original row. Um, so we're trading off the writes being slower because obviously when you insert into a, the user's table, if it needs to update the, the binary tree and you have six or seven other indexes, then it will need to like write all of those. And that has cost. And it's not a nothing cost. It's actually sometimes quite big. And... Uh, you're trading off the both store the storage as well because like you're duplicating data when I said before like you could concatenate the first and last name you're literally storing the first and last name twice in your database yep. so you're increasing storage which is typically cheaper than CPU mm -hmm. cost uh, yep. so you increase the storage and uh, you uh, improve the performance of the actual query that you would run so mm -hmm. if you have indexes that are not being utilized fully or not very often or anything like that, uh, then you should delete them, like with prejudice, because they're literally just wasting space for no reason. What if you're not a prejudiced person? Uh, you have to be prejudiced in software. Oh, that's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Only in software. Okay, Only in software. I don't, know, uh, I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> Deleting with prejudice. Well, isn't that what they that's say? A, Dismissed with that's prejudice? A, it's a legal term. It's definitely a, a audio snippet right there. I don't think we should copy that. <laughs> it's a legal term. No, you need, you need, yeah, I know. No, you've said the right word. But um, anyway, recovering from that. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, Postgres is good. But this is the other thing I wanted to ask you. Oh, before we before we go on to the Docker question, I go down so many rabbit holes these days. Reading your code is like a it's like a novel, right? It's like I want to add one feature, and then like 
bit by bit. I like get into all these different scenarios and like go here and go there. And then you're like, next minute you're learning all this different stuff. But um, that sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. But, uh, yeah, I don't um, know if I'd say that good, but okay, keep going. <laughs> How'd you learn uh, Postgres? Did you, re- have you read all the docs or? Yeah, I um I sat through and read probably 80% of the docs at one yeah. point. And then also uh, I've read uh, one of the books that I really like is called SQL Anti-Patterns because I oh. figured out the right way to learn is not through what people are doing correctly because that's boring. You want to figure out where people are failing. And so SQL Anti-Patterns, yeah. which is like a prag-prog book, pragmatic programmer book, is really yeah. good for explaining why there are all these things that you shouldn't do in SQL, that's so like good. array columns, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, that's a really good book. And then there's also a Postgres for application developers book. I don't know if you can hear me typing. Uh, yeah. There, which is Mastering PostgreSQL in Application Development by Dimitri Fontaine. It doesn't have the best rating, but uh, I really think this was like, this one goes over even like how to test Postgres and everything. So this is like, Mm -hmm. if you want to be an expert in Postgres, this book is super helpful. And not for Mm -hmm. like, this is not like a lot of the Postgres books, which makes it seem like you're, oh, I'm a data analyst or something. This is like for application development. So all the use cases are like, we want to tell who's the fastest car and the top three fastest cars out of a race in the database, right? And then return it in a way that the API can use or like some JSON stuff. It's a really good book. And then the other book, uh, I had a database course book that I stole from my brother at one point, um, which didn't mention Postgres specifically, but explained all the normal forms and everything. You've probably already Mm -hmm. heard about the normal forms and everything if you're doing, if you've learned set theory at university. But uh, yeah, like that explains a little bit of around why you structure your database in a in a normalized fashion and when to denormalize and some of the rules around just relational databases in general. Because there's actually like math behind why a lot of the things are the way they are and the, why mm. they're optimized in that way. So yeah, those books are the, really the, the reason. I like this idea of learning the anti-patterns because sometimes I write code and, I'll be, and I'll, I look at it and I'm like, this just looks wrong, but I don't yeah. know if it's an anti-pattern. Or, like I need someone to say that's an anti-pattern, so I don't. Well, do that's <laughs> what's good with clean code. You know, the clean code book. It's uh, like if you read it one way, it is actually just like a book of like, please don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like he he obviously he says it in a positive way, like oh, we do this instead of this, but like it yeah. is literally like these are the anti-patterns of writing I Java code. The just just hit me if it's wrong. It's yeah. Good. Yeah. So if if you inverted the the structure of uh, Bob Martin's chapters in that book, it would be a, like an anti-patterns book, which is mm. good, which is super useful. Yeah, maybe maybe um, someone could rewrite the book and just flip the. Yeah, maybe he can do that himself. Maybe, context, that'd be nice. maybe yeah. yeah, make it all negative instead of positive. Well, it's very hard to I I don't know apply the the positive stuff most of the time because it's so like it's so simplistic normally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so when I started doing all the Postgres stuff, I was doing a little bit of Docker, but too much, not too much. But then uh, I came across some news articles saying that Docker Desktop is going to be a paid app very soon. What? And let me tell you, I wasn't, I was already 
not a fan of Docker Desktop because it chews up heaps of memory on my computer. Heaps. Yeah. It's already and, the worst app. And it, it, che- and it like, uses heaps of storage on my computer as well. And I'm running low on storage. Yeah. I, I can't afford a new MacBook until we get some investors in on the startup. So, you know, I've got to do something about Docker. Mm. Yeah. So then I started looking. Well, I was going to ask you, because obviously you're running Docker on Linux and you wouldn't have a Docker desktop. But then I was looking about, some people said use Podman. And I don't know you've told me about Podman before. Yeah, that's, um, that's very popular. I think they're sponsored by Red Hat or something, if I recall correctly. That's definitely mm-hmm. what uh, they've been using. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think what they want you to pay for... Oh, I, I, obviously, I haven't read that article that you've read, but I, if it's what I recall hearing about like six months ago or so, it's actually that they want the like cloud system to be paid for because everyone's just uploading their Docker images and pulling them for free all the time and they're just wasting a lot of bandwidth for nothing. Yeah. So it sounds... Maybe this is different, but it sounds like what uh, we actually need is a different like repository for Docker images, not necessarily. And saying Docker image is not right anymore, <laughs> obviously, because Docker is a brand name. Um, uh, a container image would probably be would probably be better. Uh, I'm just looking it up. Docker hot, desktop. Yeah, it's free for small businesses. But if you've got a large business or if you need a pro one, $5 per user per month. What does that Docker mean? De- Docker like, Desktop is the... Is it the app? app? that I use on Mac to run the Docker containers. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean... I used to use it. They, they like coerced me into downloading it onto my machine. I was very happy with running it without this Docker Desktop app. And yeah. somehow over the past year or so, it got onto my machine because they said this is the way you need to do it now, and now they've put the price on it. Well, what does it even do? What it is just it runs desk- the containers, just like runs Docker. But it's the VM that runs it, right? The the Linux VM that Docker that that it, that's part of it. I don't know what the actual desktop app does. If I because I I remember the old desktop app when I actually had a MacBook before mm. I moved to Linux was that it, all it pretty much showed you was like a list of the containers. Yeah, but they like expanded. The, okay, well, yeah. I mean, what else can it do? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I'm looking, like, so I'm looking at the pricing it like, plan. It, it says has like a nice GUI to say like how much memory do you want to give to your containers and stuff like that. No, that's lame. Just yeah. When it crashes, you give it more memory. That's the answer. <laughs> and then go on Stack Overflow for three seconds and find the the flag to give it all of the memory on your computer. That's what I do every time. It's never failed me. <laughs> Trust me, I've worked yeah, so, with blo- more bloated apps than you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I need to get rid of it. Well, yeah, it even but, mentions the image pulls. I think image pulls are really what they're more worried about than anything. Okay. I, I, I don't know that much about Docker Desktop, whether or not that's anything. Because I remember it was like some way to run Docker Swarm on your computer and then they made it Kubernetes, like a local Kubernetes thing. They just don't know what they're doing, Docker. Okay, so tell me, what do you do on, on your Linux machine? How does it work? Uh, I just have it installed. Just Docker. The Docker CLI. That's it. Docker CLI. Yeah, that's it. And then there's no VM or anything um, that I need to run. It's because it's on Linux. It runs directly against my kernel itself. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's substantially faster as well. 
Is that too Mac. much to ask in this modern world of technology? Well, Podman is a Docker compliant. I believe it's API, both it's HTTP API, because Docker mm. has an HTTP API, if you didn't know. And, mm. and uh, much like Kubernetes, they both have one. Uh, and you can interact with it and play around with it. It's quite fun. Um, Podman has the HTTP API that matches, I believe, and as well as the CLI. You can essentially alias, and a lot of commands will still work out of the box. But I really don't think that's going to save you from this because what they want is you to log into their their Docker repository so you can pull images. Where else are you pulling images from? I don't know. Good question. Well, where do you get your images from? Uh, Docker. So, but yeah. I obviously I haven't uh, <laughs> I haven't uh, been doing many containers, or else I'd know about this. I know that the CI processes at, at a company that I've been consulting for have failed because of Docker, but uh, I, don't th- I think they just started using the Amazon uh, container uh, repositories for that. Mm. That's pretty, that's, it's not super easy to set up because you, you have to set mm. one up for each image you want. But anyway, maybe I'll self-host Nexus and then just store them, store them there. Who knows? I think uh, going back to self-hosting is the way of the future. Yeah, I've got a whole setup now. I'm I'm really getting into the whole. Have you heard of R slash Home Lab? No, no Reddit Home Lab. There's a, oh, so okay. There's a Reddit for like um setting up like your own personal little cloud setup and everything. And so I've been getting into that and everything. I've got uh, two Raspberry Pis and a NUC, uh, which is the next unit of computing by Intel. And they're all <laughs> like low power devices, and they all run. So on my Raspberry Pis, I'm running like uh, Pihole, which is like a universal ad blocker and DNS service. And then I'm going to set up uh, probably K3S, which is like a local Kubernetes system. Right now, it's like Prometheus, so it's essentially just the Promethe- Prometheus master mm. uh, and some other what other services. Uh, like Grafana, like it's mostly metrics on everything and then some like temperature statistics and I'm going to get an an air air quality sensor, that sort of thing. It's quite fun. Yeah. Can you, um, can you mirror the repositories of code as well? Yeah, I'm going to do that. that? Yeah, I'll set up my own Nexus just, just for speed really. Um, Yeah. Because, so, because, you know, our project is Yarn 2, but a lot of JavaScript projects that I use are uh, not Yarn 2. So they don't mm-hmm. bundle the actual code with them. So I end up, like, having to delete node modules and reinstall every package pretty much, like, every day whenever mm-hmm. I work on anything else. So if I actually had those packages cached somewhere, the, like, local desktop one doesn't work very well. Whatever it is that NPM does, it's really bad. <laughs> and it does not actually cache anything. Um, mm. So I'm thinking potentially if I put it into Nexus, maybe that'll give me some performance bump, but maybe not. So Even uh, even peace of mind just to like own your code. Because um, actually here's another rabbit hole for you. I was, yeah. I was doing the back end the other day and then there's a library you use um, for the time and dates. Oh called... my God, there's a vulnerability. Oh, is there? No, there must be. In the, That's what I said. <laughs> uh, I think it's called lib. Oh, it's the phone number one. Lib number JS. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a um, package that lets you validate phone numbers, and it can tell you like what country the phone number's from. Is it a landline phone number? Is it a mobile phone uh, number? Yeah, I didn't so, add it, but yes. Yep. Yeah, yep. you added it. I didn't. Yeah, you did. Yeah. I didn't. You most definitely did. Promise I didn't. 
Okay, <laughs> someone added it. And, um, yeah, well, there's I'm only one other person who did, and I know for a fact he did because I was there when he added it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I started, um, I wanted to look at like how the code worked. So I hopped into the GitHub repo. I can't remember if I went to the GitHub or the NPM. Anyway, the guy who made the, um, and it's a very large package too. It's got like hundreds of thousands of downloads per week. And um, the guy posted something bad on Twitter one day. And so GitHub blocked his account. Couldn't get in to this like wow. massive library. Wow. Without any notice or explanation because of that, all the source code had to be promptly moved to GitLab. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's and incredible. Then, and then, so they didn't even like give him a like a a, a rebuttal to the oh, I accusations. See. Yes, 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 yes. Well, they're owned by Microsoft now, so they don't really care. This is <laughs> this is this is life. Um, so that wouldn't be Nexus because Nexus would be your like vendored dependencies. I yep. it would definitely be very smart if you have code you're hosting for anything, any of yep. your own code, any of your own Git repositories to yep. actually host those on your own system. And that would be, yeah. you can actually run a GitLab instance locally, I'm pretty sure. Um, oh, okay. That might be the simplest option. Or like yeah. Git itself on its own if you don't want a big GUI for it. Yeah. Easy too. Yeah, I just, because I seen it and I thought like such a vulnerability, even large scale packages, like you say the wrong thing to the wrong person. And he didn't even... He didn't even have any malice in his actions. Just like, because they, they reinstated his account after he explained what had happened. It's interesting that it would have come from Twitter, though. That's the, that's the strangest thing. Is that what you said? That it, it was, he was banned because of something he said on Twitter? I might be wrong there. If you've got it open, just double check it. But he did, he mentioned, he commented on. He said something sinful. We don't have to repeat it. Said something Whatever sinful, it was. Yeah. It doesn't yes. matter. We agree he's a bad person, but <laughs> should his account have been banned from GitHub, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not We're not in America, so on, you can say whatever I'm you want. Like I'm not taking a position on whether what he done was right or wrong. I'm I'm just making an observation that you can get locked out of your shit. Yeah, very easily. Something. Yeah. Very easily. Well, this is um this is quite like this is a universal issue that I think some people are starting to realize. Like we gave up all these blogs. Like everyone moved off of. Remember how big blogs were back in the day? Everyone gave yeah. up that in RSS so that they could have a Twitter feed. And now yeah. Twitter like deletes people of every side and for whatever yeah. reason they're now like content moderators. And you've given up all of your like ability to self curate what you read. So now you're yeah. spammed with ads for like the tiniest bit of convenience. So it's the same thing with like code probably moving out from a lot of these bigger services. I, I see a lot more blogs nowadays. I see a lot more like uh, independent um, creators. I, I think that's probably going to happen. People are going to realize yeah. they need to host their own code. Git was meant to be a distributed sort of file sharing system. So uh, it doesn't make sense that it's a monolithic uh, <laughs> Microsoft owned product, to be honest. Yeah. Microsoft's massive now. I don't really get why companies are, like it's so easy to host Git on its own. I don't get why companies feel the need to host these big Git like repository systems outside of like I guess like code review is it. That's the only reason why you would want GitHub 
or like there's not many other features really is there code review that's it they're very feature poor these systems and they've added in like github actions which are good but yeah for the like code hosting stuff there's not that good of a reason pull request that's it i like it with no features to be honest i would hate it if they started adding more features would you oh i see Oh, I don't know. It depends on the feature, I suppose. Probably being a bit preemptive. Maybe there. chat. But I do like the simplicity. What if they add like an instant messenger, like Facebook, <laughs> into <laughs> GitHub? GitHub Stories. That's what GitHub I'm Stories. <laughs> 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 that's actually really good. I think someone's done that. Didn't um, that, that guy do that? That meme meme coder? Anyway. Ben Awad. Ben Awad. He definitely has done this. It was VS Code VS Stories. VS Code Stories. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And then VS Code yeah. Twitter. Uh, uh, Tinder. Tinder, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you want to learn the cool software, Postgres, that's where it's at. That's right. Everyone, no one believed me five years ago, but uh, now right. everyone believes me. Everyone's using everyone Postgres. Wanted, everyone wanted the document. The, day, the, the days of being a document database was cool. Do you remember how cool everyone thought that was? Everyone was like, no SQL database. I remember every job ad said yeah. must have experience with NoSQL, MongoDB or, or Neo4j. And now find me a job ad for <laughs> Neo4j. It's like two. <laughs> the poor guys who, who got stuck and couldn't get out of it. So. It is so funny how... Do you know who did it? Solutions who? Architects. Oh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Let me just open up but my it, wounds. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but like you see something new and you want to kind of work on it maybe yeah well a lot of the big companies they like the i like the tried and proven technologies too but yeah if but there's like all these like architecture conferences like uh or like what semi-architect like event uh what's it called um uh something loop strange loop is that right do you know what i'm talking about those conference talks where they do all these like architecture talks about everything and they always use like whatever the freshest technology is no one ever talks about like this is why you should architect your system with postgres on those talks (laughs) or this is why postgres is a good solution for your small to medium business it's all like oh this is why you should start using event sourcing right now this thing that we have no idea about and no one's used very well (laughs) yeah i've been getting um well, you you referred me to uh, that. Who's the C Sharp guy who does domain stuff on uh, YouTube? Uh, oh, that's um, Code Opinion. Code yeah, Opinion. He has a YouTube you channel. Recommended me to Code Opinion, and ever since I've been watching those videos, I've been getting ads for Event. There's yeah. some event database called Event Store or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he he is somewhat into um, event sourcing. He at least like says. Do not do this uh, unless you have done this before, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then, yeah, he recommends against event sourcing in most cases. He's What he typically advocates is for event-driven software, which is very different from event sourcing. Event sourcing is like, do you know the difference? Have you, so, so event sourcing is like, I'm wrong. Yeah. Event, uh, event sourcing is the one where, Oh, which is the one where you like store all the transactions? Uh, well, you could store them in both. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. well, you tell me the difference then. So event sourcing would be like, uh, we don't have a relational database. Or if we do, it's not used in the way that you would expect, where you could say select star from users. 
what you have is a list of every up, like action that has happened to a user. So there's a user created event, user updated event, user deleted event, right? And using all of those events, we can build what the current state of the system is at any point in time using those events. But we also have like a guaranteed audit trail, essentially. Event sourcing is that, where <laughs> the current state of everything is driven, is der- driven, derived from derived, yeah. your, derived, like, yeah. your event logs, right? Yeah. Uh, Event-driven code is just you're using events to, like, drive the actions in your software. So you might, like, have other actions kick off because you have something publishing the fact that you have an activity. Let's say a user signed up and you want to send them an email. You don't need to link those things together directly. You can decouple them by having a user, like, an an event-driven, like, mailing uh, system. So once yeah. a user signs up, they get a, a, an email, but those don't even have to be the same code base or anything. And adding that on is very easy if it's event driven. So you use a sort of like, it's like thinking of like a stream um, in RxJS or something where you like, you're pushing out events and then other things can hook in them into them whenever you want. Mm. With the event sourcing, but with your, say your example, how you've got user created and then user updated, and maybe that happens thousands of times to get the current state of the user, wouldn't that be quite um, cost intensive in order to get to the current state? Well, that's the fun thing about these is that, um, like I said, you know how I said you wouldn't have a SQL database that's used in the same way? You might have two databases with event sourcing. You might have one that is a relational database and you might have one that is an event log. Uh, And uh, so you might use your event log to populate a relational database that is in reality like the world's biggest cache. So you just actually store a user table, but then whenever you need to like rewrite the history of everything, you reload all of your events from all time, millions oh. and millions of events. And, you know, right. depends on how fast your system is. So yeah, I've done something similar with, um, so I had to use Kafka for a while and they had a somewhat event sourced system. It's not pretty, it's not nice. And there's so many, like, it's, it's one of those things that sounds good in practice, in, in theory, but then in practice, there's so many edge cases that you have to watch out for that it's almost, uh, like, unusable unless you have one person managing one table for their entire life. So, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's essentially it. And then there's also some other tools like um, KSQL and that sort of thing, which is like Kafka, uh, SQL. It's essentially like you can write queries that are automatically updated and stored um, based on some query that queries the like stream of data. It's very hypey. I don't think it's I don't think it's worth um, digging into. We've been fine thus far. Stick to Postgres. Stick to Postgres. You can have an SNSQ and an SQSQ. That's all you're allowed. <laughs> Hit the music. That's it. Yes. Stick to Postgres. This was the Stick to Postgres episode. Postgres, if you're listening, we're ready for a sponsorship. We are sponsored by Postgres. Uh, (laughs) If you want to get a free Postgres t-shirt, then you can rate us five stars and join our Discord. We won't send you one, but uh, you can ask Postgres. Email them and ask for a free t-shirt. Or if you want to get a free copy of Postgres, just let us know. Yeah, we will send you a link to an exclusive download of <laughs> Postgres. Maybe the GitHub mirror. The unruly software version of Postgres. Yeah, let's fork Postgres let's and just... <laughs> That's what we'll do. We'll change some of the keywords, like get rid of select. Ugh, disgusting. Uh, Replace it with select? unruly. Unruly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it to us. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 
I think it can, it can catch on, maybe. Hop in the Discord and we'll send it to you. Goodbye.